Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host, joined by James Fox. Today, we have a guest from ESPN, ESPN Baseball Insider Kylie McDaniel. He is on Twitter at KylieMCD. You can follow him there and follow his work now, specifically at ESPN. Congratulations to you, Kylie, on the recent move. You're also working with Eric Longenhagen on a book that is being released, uh, coming out in April of this year, called... Future Value, the battle for baseball soul and how teams will find the next superstar. It was actually forwarded to, I saw, by Keith Law, so I'm really looking forward to that uh, specifically. But Kylie, thanks so much for jumping on with us. We like to talk a lot of baseball with you, specifically White Sox baseball. Before we do that, though, we recognize that you contributed at Fangraphs for, for quite a bit, and that's really where I was familiar. I got familiar with your work. Uh, we're big fans of your work, and you just got promoted over to ESPN. Could you just take me through that whole journey for you and really the steps that it took for you to get to where you are today in baseball? Yeah, I'll, I guess I'll do the, the short version of the whole, the whole odyssey because there's a lot of well, – See, there's a lot of stops. If you uh, pull up my LinkedIn uh, profile, you'll see there's just like a lot of different places I've been. <laughs> um, uh, I guess I I started, I read the book Moneyball when I was a senior in high school um, to give you like an idea of when all this started. I wanted to get into baseball. I started bothering people that I knew that were in baseball and which is obviously like pretty, pretty tenuous grasp on those sorts of things. I ended up landing an internship with the Yankees uh, in Tampa. Uh, I grew up in Tampa and I was going to college in Orlando. Uh, so I did that for three summers, uh, which was great. And that was back when you could not pay interns and people just would hire them when they kind of showed up and asked to work for you and you bother them enough and they just hire you. And like two or three years after that is when it was like a very formal process and you had to pay everybody and, you know, everything's listed and all that kind of thing. So I did that for a little while. Uh, didn't get a full-time job. Uh, started writing. Um, did some non-baseball things. The recession hit. Things took a little longer than I wanted them to. Uh, and then eventually I started doing uh, writing up the July 2 guys. My first class was the Miguel Sano, Gary Sanchez class uh, for baseball prospectus. Uh, I then latched on with Baltimore. Uh, that didn't go exactly as planned in terms of like they had like a job lined up for me and then dramatically changed their plans. And so then I went to Pittsburgh the next year. Um, and they had a job lined up for me and then their plans changed in, in an almost similar way. And then I got a little tired of the teams being able, having, you know, one or two people at a team controlling my entire future. So then I, um, moved back to Florida, wrote for ESPN for a year, uh, working under Keith Law when he was in Arizona and I was in Florida for the draft class where it was a good year to be in Florida. It was Mike Zanino and Albert Almora. And I was driving all around the Southeast, um, Byron Buxton, all those guys that year, I guess it was 2012. Uh, then I moved to Fox Sports slash Scout.com uh, for about a year. And then I latched on with Fangraphs, which I think is when I kind of popped on to like the larger stage for most people. Um, and then from there, <laughs> so we're still in my 20s at this point, um, I went to uh, the Braves and was there for about three years. And the, I was assistant director of baseball ops and was just sort of the junior guy in the room for every different department. And then toward the end, I moved out to West Coast Crosschecker. Uh, and then we had a GM change. I, uh, I proactively left before all of that happened uh, to go back to Fangraphs. Uh, and then I was there for, I think, a couple of years. And then the ESPN thing popped up. And I was like, well, that's uh, arguably the sort of highest perch for people that do this sort of work. So obviously can't, uh, can't argue with that, which it was, it was, you know, it was tough to sort of make that move because Fangraphs had been so great to me and, you know, at times of transition and times of like looking for 
a way to get ahead in the world, uh, they were there for me. And I think it's, you know, great place to work and really loved it. Um, but I think they, they very well understood that you can't really turn out ESPN when it's this kind of job. Awesome. So you talked about some of the, uh, I guess you're known for a lot of the international writing. One of the guys, the White Sox, you know, signed last month that's supposed to be for the next class was Cuban right-hander Nore Vera. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about him? Yeah, he uh, he defected when the Cuban national team was in, a, in the States over the summer. Uh, I usually go see them uh, most years. They'll play like a July 4th game against the college team USA. So the Cuban team is usually of, you know, various quality, but I've seen them, you know, with Yasmani Tomas. Like there's usually like a couple decent guys on the team. Uh, and then college team USA usually has, you know, five, six first round picks. And so right around July 4th, you can kind of get both teams for four or five days. And so every year I try to do that. Uh, this past year, uh, the Cuban team played uh, some independent league teams up in Pennsylvania, New Jersey area. And Vera had a really good outing up there. And he and Yuelka uh, Cespedes both left then before they came down to North Carolina to play Team USA where all the scouts were. There was a much smaller group of scouts, maybe, you know, five or 10 percent as many um, watching them in Pennsylvania. Um, so at that outing and I guess all of his, you know, subsequent, um, showcase outings, he was some version of low nineties. He's been all the way up to 97 in the past. Um, basically when his VLO gets high, his command will back up a little bit, but there's been times where he'll throw strikes at 91 and 95. Um, he'll mix in curveball slider changeup. All of them are average to above. He's 18. He's six, four. He's projectable, good delivery. Like I said, usually throw strikes, especially when he's not trying to do too much. Um, his dad is sort of a historic Cuban player. Uh, so he's kind of got all the makings of when I was at Fangraphs, Eric and I uh, kind of compared him to, uh, you know, pick your high school righty in terms of projectable 18 year old flashes above average to plus stuff um, at times anywhere from, you know, 25th overall pick to 75th overall pick, like depending on which guy you're looking at and exactly what kind of look you got. Um, but yeah, it's sort of in that general range. And then obviously signing for 1.5, there were some rumors he might get into the twos. That's basically the bonuses that um, were where that talent would fit um, in the draft. So it seems like the teams kind of came to a similar conclusion. Yeah, so, I mean, even here at Future Sox, we had kind of heard that, you know, coming up here into the future that they have some level of interest in Cespedes, and they were supposed to go to the workout on Wednesday, or today, I think, that's obviously didn't happen. And then also um, the Oscar Colas, too. Would you have a preference if you were them for one of those guys? Uh, I think they're both in the sort of low seven-figure range. Like, I think if you were to ask international scouts to, like, set an over-under, I think they'd both be, like, around a million, a million five. Uh, Colas, uh, came over, he, uh, played in the Japanese minor leagues and then played a little bit in the NPB, which is the, the biggest league in Japan. Um, obviously two way guys, a lefty up to 95 on the mound. He's seen uh, as a better prospect as a hitter, as sort of a right field, classic profile, left-handed bat. Um, when he got to the Dominican, cause I was sort of uh, obsessively checking in with scouts, trying to see like first glimpses, like, what does he look like? A lot of these guys hadn't really seen him much often. And uh, he, you can actually look up, there's a video that was on Twitter. Um, he's overweight. Like he's up, you know, maybe 20 pounds from where he had been. And so now a guy that looked like he was a multi-million dollar prospect that were, you know, scouts were kind of waiting to see exactly how it would play out and what his physicality would be. And it is like well south of where it needs to be. Um, so he's probably, you know, somewhere high six figures, uh, low seven figures um, for even the teams that, you know, would really like him. He's probably kind of off the radar for some teams that are just getting their first looks at him. Uh, and then Cespedes, he's sort of the bite-sized version of his brother. He's got a huge arm, you know, 70 or 80, smallish guy, 
maybe not quite the runner defender to play center field, maybe not quite the power to play a corner, a little bit of a tweener, can be a little out of control at times, but is still young and, you know, has some upside. And then uh, I guess these sort of early returns on oftentimes these guys will defect and then disappear for a little while and get into insane shape. Obviously with Colas, that wasn't the case. Uh, Sesame is one of those guys that got in insane shape. Um, and I don't think he's been seen. I guess now, you know, nobody's being seen. But I don't think he was seen extensively by teams. Maybe a couple teams would get in and see practices and stuff. So I think he was probably like mid to upper six figures and maybe has now worked his way into seven figures. So they're probably right in the same area right now. But obviously a lot of variability since it's, you know, a lot of unknowns. The White Sox and, and, and Mike Shirley have adapted a little bit of a different strategy, at least lately, in committing to these prep uh, players out of high school. There are two in particular that I'd like to focus on here. Jared Kelly, um, high school product out of Texas, uh, a pitcher. He looks exciting, and as well as a local product around our area, Mount Carmel shortstop Ed Howard. What can you tell me about those two prospects? Also, is the and also there's it is a college heavy draft upcoming in 2020. Do you think it's reasonable for the White Sox to go after one of those two names in Jared Kelly and Ed Howard, or do you believe that because it's such a college heavy draft, at least in the top in the first round, it's more wise for the White Sox to go that direction? Uh, I've always been a a fan of uh, you know sort of take what's best on the board, and it can be a college heavy draft, but if a high school player is the best one that's available. Then you take them, and I think especially when you're picking up high, uh, you know, if you're at 15, 20, 25, I think a lot of people, especially casual observers of the draft, will say, oh, well, you got to take best available. But from sitting in a draft room, and you can ask, you know, any scouting director this, especially when you get outside of the top 10, 15 picks, they're like, best available is, a sub- is like subject to what you prefer. Like, if you prefer upside high school pitchers and you're at number 20, what you think is best available is probably an upside high school pitcher. Um, and the sort of tier where it's pretty clear, like, oh, there's 10 guys. You've got to take the best one available based on what you have of those 10 guys. Uh, obviously, the White Sox are at 11. Um, but they're, like, on sort of the tail end of that tier, uh, typically, and this year is deeper than usual. Uh, so I would expect them to sort of take someone that is, you know, I guess depending on how you say that, maybe the t- top tier is four or five guys. But the tier of guys where there is actual stratification and there's, you know, sort of correct picks in that if you pick someone way out of this group, you, you'd better get a discount. I think they're in that group. So I don't think there is a, you know, look at this demographic or look at this strategy. And, and then also now, um, you know, with the White Sox getting closer to contention or building the team in such a way that they want to compete in the short term and this being a college heavy draft, that's probably like if you're playing the odds where things are going to go because it both fits what they're doing and uh, fits what the draft is probably going to give them. Um, that being said, as you know, you mentioned, there's some high school players of a lot of interest. Uh, Jared Kelly's, you know, up to 98 to 100, depending on what kind of gun, um, what kind of outing you're looking at. But big guys, sturdy frame, big plus fastball, plus changeup, actually throws strikes, which, I mean, if you're looking at the track record of guys that are in the high 90s as 17, 18-year-olds, uh, them having a plus secondary pitch and actually throwing strikes and not being like just a goofy giraffe out there that you're just projecting to learn how to do stuff is pretty low. There's not many of them. And he is one of these guys that is the more sort of po- like he's almost like a college pitcher. Um, obviously not as polished as 21 year olds, but like his sort of style of pitching is closer to 21 year olds than the typical 18 year old um, breaking balls, you know, average to above 
Uh, I would say there is, because he's so young, there's the chance he could be an ace, uh, but it's probably more of a two or three, which obviously if you guys have followed my stuff or Eric's stuff for a while, like we feel like there's only 10 or 15 guys in the minors at any given time that you can actually say has ace potential. And then of those, maybe, you know, up to five of them actually get there. So calling a guy probably not a future ace is not that big of a uh, of a slam, but he, he technically has the ability. He's obviously one of the best high school pitchers we've seen um, in the last few years. Uh, Howard, I think he gets a little more of a widespread, um, from scouts, uh, not cause of the skills. Like he's, you know, he can run, he can play short. He's got raw power. He's uh, twitchy with bat speed, all that sort of stuff. Uh, he hit reasonably well over the summer. Um, I think because he's more of a cold weather guy and there's not quite as much track record before this past summer, scouts already knew he was going to be sort of tough to see this spring. He had a big event that has already been canceled, but at NHSI, he was going to get four games against pretty good pitching in warm weather. Um, I, I think teams could have him anywhere from 10th to 30th on their board. Whereas Kelly, I think was like a pretty consensus somewhere from five to 12. Um, and then obviously they could move up or down based on how they performed. Really good stuff on Vera, Cespedes, Colas, and of course, Kelly Howard there. The young prospects that we're keeping an eye on related to the White Sox, potentially those two draft prospects. But now I'd like to shift the focus to somebody that you know we've been following over the last three seasons and somebody who's really burst onto the scene and, and is ready to make his Major League debut, signed an extension in Luis Robert. You have Luis Robert as number five overall in terms of top 100 prospects. There were injuries mixed in there in, in Robert's tenure, but are you at all surprised at how successful he was in his first full healthy season in terms of the production? I think with uh, with guys in a situation like Robert, which I guess obviously Cuban players would be the ones that are most often in that situation, where you have a heavily hyped guy, uh, still pretty young, um, and has all kinds of tools, but hasn't really done it on the scale of like, you know, SEC, low minors, that kind of thing. Obviously the competition for Cuban players and international events like varies drastically. Like you could be facing a team with a bunch of 90 plus arms and then face a team with a bunch of guys throwing in the low to mid eighties at these events, depending on how old you are, what kind of event it is, et cetera. And then obviously in Cuba, you have like the Wiley guy in his late thirties that throws 86, but has all kinds of, you know, feel and cutters and sort of latter day Levon Hernandez. So it's like kind of hard to really, have an idea of how good these guys are in terms of like in-game skills. And then also, like I mentioned before with Yolkis status is when um, a lot of these players will defect, there will be drastic changes to their physicality because, you know, being in a communist country versus training for a big bonus, there's like differences in like the urgency and the sort of nutrition and training and all that sort of stuff um, for getting ready. So the, it can be a bit of a roller coaster depending on the looks and Robert has, you know, huge tools. It was very young but then from the time he defected to the time he was like playing a game was like a pretty long layoff. And it wasn't clear if he was a guy with, you know, overactive pitch selection and having some of those issues. And it turns out like he, you know, does swing a little more than you'd like him to. Um, but in a way that doesn't completely, at least in the upper minors, neuter his raw ability. And I think a lot of times, I guess one of the examples uh, I use for this is Lewis Brinson, where you get to the higher minors and you're so talented, which I think is the case with Robert, that like even if you have some flaws, your skills um, shine through. Um, and so I guess the question uh, with Robert is, and I guess I'm now sort of like reading my report back to you, but the question is where he is on the spectrum of like Lewis Brinson on one extreme 
And then somewhere in the middle, you've got, you know, Joey Gallo and Starling Marte, which are, you know, really good outcomes. And then maybe even all the way up to Ronald Acuna, where there are some issues, but how quickly do you fix them? Do you fix them at all? How much do your other skills and tools sort of paper over those things and just make it doable? Um, and he's, I think, you know, Robert is one of the best examples of this uh, because he could, he could basically not progress at all and have a somewhat problematic approach, but because of his speed and defense and arm and physicality and everything, still be a pretty good player and be an everyday player. Uh, but who puts it all together, um, then, you know, you could have five one player perennially, like one of the best players in baseball. Like the fact that that's on the table and he's big league ready and he's locked in long-term, like you, you kind of have all the things you want to play. So I'm imagining you guys are pretty excited about all this. Yeah, we are. So, I mean, obviously, like we, you know, we saw some of the, you know, some of the issues with plate discipline, like in the minors while he was raking and even like in spring training. I mean, there's a lot of like um, two and three pitch at bats with him. But like you said, like, I mean, even, you know, with the defense and the base running, I mean, you're if he's not as great as he could be offensively, he still might be like a three war regular, which would, you know, be kind of nice. So when he's when he signed, like Eric and I didn't rank him as a guy where it was one of those. Even if he doesn't improve at the plate, he's going to be pretty good, and he might be a super duper star. It was like, hey, we knew the tools meant that was possible, but we didn't think he was going to rake like this to where it's like he's really got to screw up to not be like a like an everyday player. Right, exactly. So another guy I wanted to bring up, Andrew Vaughn. You ranked him number thirty-two overall. Um, something we've been asking people. I mean, he's obviously five foot eleven, maybe with a right right profile at first base. So I guess just did you have any reservations about that profile, even though you ranked him as highly as you did? I mean, yeah, like you're you know even when you rank a guy up that high, like you're always aware of like I think specifically as like a list making guy. Uh, one of the, you know, whatever the, however, however many people you want to include in that group, um, you're always aware of how could this guy make me look bad? Uh, and there is a way where, um, you know, Andrew Vaughn turns into CJ Cron and, and, or Crone or however you want to say that. And, and it, and it's then sort of like, well, you know, this guy's just fine, but like you had him way up there and you look at the physicality and you're like, well, you should have been able to see this coming. Like there's not a lot of all-stars that physically look like this guy. Uh, and you can feel, you know, kind of foolish doing that. Um, but not many guys have the track record of Andrew Vaughn the last three years, not only in the Pac-12, but also with Team USA for two summers, um, where the tools got slowly better. And I think he's a good example of the kind of guy where there is baseball athleticism and there's football athleticism. Football athleticism would be sort of combine, like run the 40, do the bench press, um, you know vertical jump explosion, that, that, that sort of thing, like very conventional the way people, when people say athleticism on the street, this is what they mean. Baseball athleticism is like quick twitch in short areas, uh, not necessarily speed, but like in your hands, your, the scouts will always talk about your fingertips to your elbows, a lot of forearms and wrists and things. And then also athletic in the batter's box, as opposed to everywhere else on the field where it's like loose and can adjust your swing in such ways and have bat control and things like that. It doesn't really have anything to do with being like a cornerback in the NFL, but it has a lot to do with being a good hitter. And he has all of that stuff without having the traditional athleticism stuff. So I think for a scout, when you've been around for a while, you see all the baseball athlete stuff without the football athlete stuff. And you know that you can feel confident about that because there's a lot of guys like that in the big leagues. Maybe they don't have exactly that, the physicality that uh, Vaughn has. Maybe they're not first baseman. Um, but you feel a little better about it because you don't need a guy to be, you know, a standout at the NFL combine to be an all-star. Um, and so with Vaughn, it's, you know, he might fail, might make me look silly. Um, but I'd, I'd rather bet on those sorts of guys than bet against them. 
I want to stay on the topic of top five draft picks here. And, and this guy is somebody we've gotten mixed reactions from when asked, and that's Nick Madrigal. You rank him in your top 50 among the, the top 100 prospects. And it's interesting to me because I, I want to get your take on his tools and his skill set and how it will translate to the big leagues. Of course, the focus with Madrigal is his contact rate and his lack of strikeouts. Fantastic stuff. But if you're not hitting that contact for power, is that going to translate into being a productive big leaguer? And yeah, you may not be striking out a ton, but if the amount of contact that you're making results in outs, how valuable can you be if you're Nick Madrigal? I'd like your take on that, Kylie. Yeah, he's a tough one because during his spring at Oregon State, I mean, he was a guy going all the way back to being a junior in high school. And he was obviously, you know, very small in stature without a lot of power back then. And when when Madrigal was standing out with Team USA over the summer uh, before his draft year, Scouts were like, yeah, we saw him in high school. He was at one of these big high schools in Sacramento that like always has guys and everybody sees him. He was at everything. Everybody knew he could hit. Everyone knew he could play up the middle. Everyone knew he could run. And he's one of those guys where when you see him in high school, guys go, oh, he's going to go to college. He's a college guy. You can't pay him a million dollars out of high school. Um, But when he performs for three years at a big conference, then you can pay him a million dollars. And it, it feels reductive sometimes because it's like, well, why don't you pay a million dollars now if you know he's going to be the guy that's going to be worth a million dollars later? Um, but that's another example of you're going to look pretty silly if you give a million dollars to a 5'8 second baseman that's 18 that doesn't get out of rookie ball. That's like almost a fireable offense at that point, which, again, is not the way it should work. But it's the same reason, you know, NFL coaches don't go for it on fourth down, because if you fail doing what everybody else does, you don't get fired. If you fail stepping out from the herd, then you get fired. Anyway, so Madrigal had a long trucker here doing all this stuff, was having a great draft spring, was doing all the stuff he wanted him to. Uh, then he broke his wrist, uh, ended up coming back. And in pro ball, he had sort of adjusted his approach to be even more contact-oriented. And the sort of issue, and again, I was still with Fangraphs when Eric and I were kind of working through this stuff. We hadn't done the White Sox list, but we were talking about him. He was a guy people are constantly, maybe you guys are the ones in our chats always asking mm. us about these guys. Um but he runs into the same issue, not issue, I guess it's a positive thing, that Luis Robert does, which is as a plus runner, plus defender, who would actually be passable at shortstop if you need him to. He's the guy that can basically every position on the field. Um, and he has enough power to hit a mistake out of the ballpark, even though his like sort of swing and approach is not necessarily suited for that. And getting to the happy fun ball and you know better bats and things like that, you could naturally see his power sort of emerge a little bit more. Probably going to be a slight approach adjustment. Maybe a little more loft. He's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna go full Jose Batista on us. Um, but there's like some ways to tease this stuff out. Um, and then he's proven that he can be an 80 bat control guy and can be like some version of an 80 bat or 70 or 60 or you know whatever it is you want to call it. Um, so at that point, the margin for error when you are plus on the base paths, plus on defense, can play multiple positions, even though he fits best at second base, uh, and is going to make all kinds of contact. Is going to you know run out ground balls and have infield hits and have a high BABIP. Um, you don't have to have that much power. Like Jose Iglesias is like, uh, that was the example Eric and I kept using. He's like, you know, a 45, maybe a 50, depending on the year. And he's basically, you know, pretty close to Madrigal um, and just didn't progress. And Madrigal is young enough and talented enough to sort of continue to progress from here. Um, so I feel like, you know, calling him an above average everyday player is assuming that he will make, which is sort of the implication with putting a 55 feature value on him. Um, the expectation is he'll be, you know, two and a half, three on player. If he doesn't improve at all, he's probably a two win player just because of all of those secondary skills and the contact. 
So I guess I would say, similar to Luis Robert, he doesn't have to get that much better to sort of be what my ranking would suggest. Uh, and also, I think this is another, uh, I think, negative thing that goes with list making. If you were to go back and look at someone's top 100 from like, you know, 10 years ago and judge everyone based on their war, um, the guys that end up, you know, being like a sneaky 17th on that list are the guys that are just in the big leagues for seven years and put up, you know, like 1.5 to 2 war. And all of a sudden, this guy put up 12. And there's a bunch of guys in rookie ball that didn't make it at all. Magicals are a pretty good bet to just hang around the big leagues long enough to put up enough war that if, oh, I guess, where do I have him? Like 47th in the top 100? 47th basically means he'll put up, I don't know, like 5, 8, something like that war, like basically average war a season. And I don't know, that seems like pretty easy <laughs> from here. So in terms of like justifying his ranking amongst these 100 players, like I don't have any worry about that. Um, but being the guy that could be a two and a half, three one player, a little work needs to be done. Uh, but he's also a guy that tends to figure things out and like similar to Vaughn, like I tend to bet on those guys that have a history of performing and outlier skills and they just sort of look weird physically in a way that the, are we selling blue jean thing, I think kind of comes into, into play. Kylie, one of the pitchers in the system I wanted to ask you about Jonathan Stevers, uh, fifth round pick in 2018 out of Indiana. You know, he was another one of these Wisconsin like prep guys that was like a multi-sport guy struggled like down the stretch for Indiana um, he had a big year in 2019. What were the reasons for some of his improvements? And do you see him as a starter long-term? Yeah, he's a good example of the, uh, you know, athletic guy, pretty good delivery. Velo gets a little bit better. Breaking ball gets a little bit better. He keeps the command because he's a good athlete. Whereas, you know, bad athletes, they start throwing harder and things fall apart because there's more effort, stuff like that. He's the kind of guy that when you see him, you're like, oh, if that guy throws a little bit harder and breaking ball gets a little better and he keeps his command, then, hey, that, that ain't going to work. And it was just sort of like an ideal version of usually when you say that you're thinking of a high school guy or a younger guy or a conversion guy that hasn't been pitching very much. Um, Steve isn't necessarily that. Um, but sometimes, you know, stuff happens at different paces. Sometimes, you know, guys are 15 years old and become like an elite hitter and just are that for the rest of their career. And other times you have Matt Carpenter, who was like a late pick as a senior at a major college and just completely changed and became a really good player in a different way. Um, and so him having that, you know, that jump at 21, 22, uh, isn't, you know, shocking, but it's definitely not likely. And he now, you know, looks like he can be fourth starter, you know, maybe third, maybe fifth. Um, like, we'll see where it goes. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's, uh, I don't want to say it's like generic or expected because it's not. Um, but there's like a handful of guys like this every year where they just start throwing harder and things get better. And they went from being like a marginal guy to a guy. And he just is, you know, one of those handful of guys last year that it happened to. I want to stay on the topic of starting pitchers. And we're going to go back a little bit to these high school players and Matthew, Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist. White Sox took it easy on them last year in their first professional experience, right? Pitched in the uh, Arizona League a little bit um, quietly. But, right, I mean, you're coming out of high school. The White Sox wanted to monitor them. So I wanted to get your opinion on both of those together. They're expected to start the year in, in Kannapolis, full season A ball. Exciting for, for 19, 20-year-old prospects, these arms. Who do you like better between the two in Dawkins and Thompson? And, I mean, if it's marginally, you can expound upon that. But do you do you expect both of these players to translate? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say either of these guys are like the projected frontline type pitcher. Uh, I mean, they're both young enough that obviously anything can happen. Uh, Thompson is more the type of pitcher that I, I would bet on. He, I guess, was somewhat disappointing uh, in a way, because I think leading into the spring, 
after the summer showcase season, he was a very like loose, athletic, smooth arm, you know, into the mid nineties, showed you some off speed stuff. And it was like, actually at that stage going into the spring about where Michael Kopech was as a Texas arm where he had like, his arm action was a little too long, got around his breaking ball some. And then during the spring, it's like the arm action got tighter, uh, tighter, I guess like, you know, shorter. Uh, and the arm speed got a little bit better and everything just sort of, uh, uh, came together in that way. And I think Thompson as being like a big projectable athlete with, I mean, he was popped up hitting 95 as like a high school sophomore. So he'd been on the radar for a while at a big high school program. Um, and it just never really popped. Like he was basically just that same guy, like, you know, mostly low nineties. We'll hit some 95s and 96s. You know, most days he'll show you some good breaking balls. He'll show you some command and change up, but not every time some outings. It just wasn't there. Sometimes he was great. It was just sort of, you know, typical high school guy where it wasn't quite what you wanted it to be. Um, so I think I'd rather bet on that kind of guy um, where it's more of a power and sort of picturesque kind of deal. Whereas Dahlquist was another, I guess, similar to Stever. Um, he was like more of a marginal guy that had a good breaking ball. And then his velo popped to where it was like low 90s. Now everything's average to above. And it's more of sort of a curveball command feel type guy where, you know, if everything goes perfectly, that might be a mid-rotation starter, but it's probably not. Uh, whereas Thompson, like, has a chance to, like, that step everyone was hoping would happen last year. It could still happen any of the next couple of years. And he could, you know, do a version of Cope. I mean, he could be Copic still. And Dahlquist, like, I just don't see that in his profile. So in your in your write-up with the White Sox prospects, you did mention a couple of these, like, relief pitcher prospects that are in their system. So I guess, Mike, which player do you like best like eventually in a high leverage role out of Cody Hoyer, who's, who's been pretty good in spring training before they got cut off Ian Hamilton, you know, Zach Birdie and Tyler Johnson. Uh, I pretty with Hoyer. Uh, I actually ran into him in, uh, in college. Uh, not <laughs> didn't even know his name. I was actually watching Alec Baum and uh, Grayson Janista um, for Wichita state and Hoyer was throwing. And I was like, Oh, this guy's pretty good. I gotta write his name down. Uh, and I started asking scouts afterwards, like, where's this guy going to go? And they're like, ah, it's like probably a reliever. Like he's fine. He'll go later. And I guess all of that went about as I was told it was go. And then he just got better in pro ball and, you know, similar to Stever. Like, oh, it's not always a 21-22 and this stuff sort of happens where the guy just sort of takes a step forward, um, but did for him. Uh, and I think he's just probably the closest, uh, if I remember all the guys you said, to having like, you know, big league command and above average stuff and could go multiple innings if you need to and just sort of has the various elements you're looking for. Whereas a lot of these other guys, it's, you know, it's come and go or it's one or two qualities. It doesn't quite have the full picture together. Yeah. So Hoyer, I mean, he, you know, he was throwing like 98, 99 in the spring A- after they drafted him. We had Nick Hostetler on and Nick Hostetler was like very like optimistic about him where he like brought him up like before we, you know, he wasn't really a guy that we brought him on to talk about. Um, you know, and he like told a story about how they went in to go see Alec Baum and they like fell in love with him or whatever. You know, we just kind of brushed it off. And then he had the huge year. I think I think they're going to start him in Charlotte. I think he leaped over, you know, everybody, those those other relief prospects. Yeah, no, that's uh, it, it's funny because in retrospect, um, you could see that that, you know, may have been the plan. And then you see where Hoyer went. And you're like, oh, well, they wouldn't have you know passed on him five times if that's what they thought was going to happen. But but it's funny that you could uh, again, not going back to like the I'm the guy that's been in a draft room. But there have been times where you get super excited about like your first round, or your second round pick, and you've done all this work. You talk about him nonstop and you're convinced this is the right one. It's this guy over that guy. 
And then your third round pick is like, ah, we got five guys on the board. Yeah, we kind of like them all. Which one do you want to take? We'll take that one. And then the guy from that group ends up being the one that like defines the whole draft. And you're like, we didn't spend as much time on that guy. And obviously from where we took him, we didn't like him as much as the first two guys. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I know that feeling where it, ma- it makes you question what you're doing. But that's why you kind of have to keep your edge because it's like, you know, if you're at a game and there's just some, you know, sixth round, you know, college guy, it's like this could be the guy that like is the guy that people ask you about for years and years and years. Like you have to treat every day um, not to sound like a <laughs> like some sort of saying you put up on a wall in your kitchen or something. We have to kind of treat every game you're at like this could be the game I talk about for the next 20 years because it usually is one you're not expecting. You don't, you don't go into a huge matchup and then tell everyone, Hey, there were a hundred guys there, uh, a hundred scouts there. And, uh, I was also there. Like, that's not the story you tell. You tell the story about the crazy outing. A couple more for you, Kylie. Really appreciate the time. Awesome stuff so far. This has been a really enlightening conversation for us. Uh, you mentioned Cody Hoyer. Yeah. Six round pick, like you said, 2018, I'd like to stay within the relievers realm uh, if I could and go back to a guy who was taken in the second round back in 2016, and that was Alec Hansen. We were extremely excited about Alec Hansen at, at Future Sox. You know, we, we put him in our top 30, uh, in consecutive top 30 lists, uh, following his 2017 where he struck out 191, and the sky was the limit for this kid. I mean, he had the build, he threw hard, he had a nasty breaking ball. But then things started falling off the table for him. Where would you say Alec Hansen is here uh, across his career and his development at this point? He is in the... So I guess talking about the Stever, Dahlquist, Hoyer, these sorts of guys that are not premium guys and then sort of become, like at least they go up that tier to being notable guys. Hanson looked like he might be the number one overall pick for like a couple weeks <laughs> in, the middle, in the middle of the season. Uh, and then obviously he ended up going 49th overall. So obviously at that point as a fan, you're like, hey, that guy was, you know, candidate to go 1-1 like, you know, two months ago. Like, this is exciting. Uh, and then, like you said, there was that like sort of explosion where I guess, yeah, at the end of 2017 when he's just sort of shoving and he's starting and everything's coming together. And you're like, wow, we were you talk about a best case scenario like this, it basically would have looked like this. Um, and then he's just not on the field very much and has hurt a lot and the stuff isn't quite the same and you're just not quite sure where it's going to come from. And it's sort of like if you were in the draft room talking about Alec Hansen, you would have said he could be a frontline starter or he could be a closer or he could just sort of wash out and get hurt again uh, and sort of always be hurt in the same way that, you know, a lot of like guys with big stuff sometimes just like fizzle. And you've basically seen all three of those <laughs> where, where at various times in the last five years, uh, you could have talked or yeah, five years, uh, you could have talked yourself into any of those things. And that'd be like the thing that, you know, scouts and executives would say, yeah, he could be that. Uh, and now I think he's in that weird sort of like post hype another region where it's like, all right, any given day, if you see him out on the mound, like he might show good stuff and like throw some reasonable strikes and look like he could, you know, start or maybe move him to relief or, you know, whatever you want to do. And if he's, you know, healthy for two or three months, you could see people being like, hey, you see the Sanson guy? Like, I don't want to get too excited, but, you know, might be might be going back to where we thought he was going to be. And, uh, you know, usually at this point, it sort of tops out a middle reliever. Um, I hope there's more there, uh, but knowing sort of the trajectory of like the guy that gets sort of hyped up and is going to be the guy and then it's just sort of, you know, injuries and things just aren't adding up. Like it usually doesn't jump back up. Like that's why I like the sort of like the Roy Halladay or guys like that, where they've had like the come to Jesus moment where they just completely lose it. That's why those are stories that everybody knows because it doesn't happen that often. 
So the White Sox do, you know, finally have some super young guys that have a little bit of upside, you know, towards the bottom of their system. You wrote about a couple of them in Bryce Bush, DJ Gladney, uh, Benjamin Bailey was a 18 year old signing out of Panama. So I guess, could you elaborate a little bit on those guys? And then which of those guys would you say would be the most likely to make a big jump? Like if we talk to you at the same time next year? Uh, I'd probably say Bailey because there is the the element of the approach while still having, you know, the big enough tools to project as an everyday guy. And there's just like 55 pro games and obviously no amateur track record to go off of. So there's sort of the least amount of information, whereas Gladney and Bush both went through like, you know, a version of the draft process. Like Bush was on the showcase circuit. Um, they obviously, obviously both played in pro ball. And so like there's enough information there that, you know, they're all teenagers. Like anything can happen. They all have you know, big, big tools like Gladney and Bush with huge power specifically. Um, so then even could do it. Uh, but I think Bailey, just because there's a, the least amount of information and like the only information we have is very solid. Um, I think there's probably like the most upside there, but yeah, I remember hearing about Gladney just before the 2019 draft where he was just putting on shows and um, pre-draft workouts, just like, you know, just BP shows. So obviously that kind of, kind of tells you where if he wasn't on the radar and then he's on the radar because of BP shows, it's, you know, it's BP power is like the big tool there. Um, and we'll see like sort of what else comes along. And Bush was, I mean, he was at the high school home run derby with Tristan Cassis who went in the first round, like he was seen all over the place and it was just, you know, a little bit of a swing and miss guy. And he was in a cold weather area. And uh, I think there was some sort of, you know, bonus demands. And is this guy a college guy or a pro guy? And some teams kind of got off him. And so he's a little under the radar. And and then, you know, there were some adjustments made. And sometimes guys with raw tools uh, that don't have the greatest coaching, um, they just sort of, you know, need a little extra instruction. It seems like there's a guy like that on almost every list. I remember Brandon Howlett um, was a version of that. And I think Jeremiah Jackson with the Angels, Howlett with the Red Sox and Jackson with the Angels. Um, Jackson specifically with the angels, like had a bad summer and then had a great spring and the spring was in Alabama against very low in competition. And so Scott's are like, we don't know if this is real. And it turned out his like eyes were jacked up all over the summer and then he fixed it. But when he fixed it, he was facing bad pitching. So nobody knew if they could trust it. And now he's like a real prospect and like weird stuff like that happens where you're sitting, you know, again, going back to the draft room, you're like, we saw this guy be bad on the stage where he needs to be good against good pitching over the summer. That's his age and his peers and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to forget that when all we're seeing is him facing guys throwing in the 80s and sometimes the 70s and like hitting home runs off those guys. Like, what could that possibly mean? Um, anyway, I, I guess I lost the thread there for a bit. But that's the issue you run into with Gladney and Bush is you have some information and it's not all great. And with Bailey, you don't have a lot of information. And so uh, in that situation, give me, give me the guy with no information that has comparable upside. Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. Outstanding stuff on the White Sox, man. Really appreciate your time. Uh, loved having you on today. We don't want you to be a, sh- be a stranger. Hopefully we can chat again soon. Before we let you go, I, I want to give you credit for the work that you put out and-, and what you were doing with Future Value, your book that's going to be released in April. You and Eric Longenhagen working on that. Could you just plug that for yourself and then tell our listeners where we can uh, where we can find that, purchase that if we want to? Yeah, the uh, like the short like thirty second elevator pitch is uh, when Moneyball the book came out. I guess it was about fifteen years ago. Scouts were worried they were going to get replaced by analysts, and it turned out that scouting reports were actually the more predictive number in a lot of cases. And so there are actually more scouts as a result. Now Statcast, Hawkeye, um, TrackMan, all these sorts of things, scouts are actually getting replaced. And if teams want to make the case that they should get fewer scouts and get more analysts they actually have like a reason to do it. I don't, we, you know, I'm not going to say where we come down on it. We obviously lay that out in the book. Um, and so like the sort of broad layout 
is there's three chapters of the draft in July 2nd and sort of the strategy and all kinds of stories. It's like scouting directors talking about all stars and top prospects and um, all kinds of guys like that that are on the top 100 or in the big leagues, how they signed them, like the crazy stories. And then also like Eric and I break down sort of like strategy and rules and like uh, how to do it. And then there's a section about how to scout. It's just like three straight chapters of if you want to learn how to be a scout, these are the things that we learned. These are what teams teach their people that try to learn how to scout. This is like, we'll spell it out in the book. Um, and there's like a companion website that goes with it that will have like videos to sort of go with the words that you're reading. And then the last part is sort of about stats. Um, you know, this is where stats used to be. This is where Moneyball took them. This is where all of the radar based technologies and all the new stuff is going. This is how teams are making analytics that can replace a scout. This is what we think about them. And then obviously we get into some of like, you know, the Astro stuff and, you know, it's both the science dealing and the stuff that they're doing in the front office um, and how they make decisions. And we sort of uh, pass a bit of judgment, but leave uh, an opportunity for you to decide how you feel about it as well. Uh, and it's available on uh, triumphbooks.com, which is through the publisher. We get sort of the biggest cut if you go through there. And uh, my pinned tweet uh, at Kylie McDee on Twitter is where you get that. But you obviously can go through you know, Amazon or wherever else you want to go. All right. I'm sold. Sounds very fair. I'm looking forward to it. Kylie, I'll definitely be picking up myself a copy. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with uh, myself and James today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Eastkin's been teaching me to like speak in 30-second sound bites, but I had a feeling you guys wanted the longer answers. <laughs> no, you did great. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. For Kylie McDaniel and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and the like. We are on multiple platforms now, so we appreciate you listening as Always remember, pick up Future Value in April by Kylie McDaniel and Eric Longenhagen. Both, well, Eric is still at Fangraphs and Kylie, formerly at Fangraphs, now of ESPN, joining us today. We will talk to you all next time, everyone. Stay healthy.